Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant, who was in charge of the reapers, answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in any other field, or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean them even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she took her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, 
Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, on Sunday evenings, the book of Ruth, the message of this little book with a big heart, the message of the book of Ruth, that even in the darkest of times, God is providentially at work for the good of his people. And that message comes or is applied to us in two ways, that in the darkest of times, in the period or a period of the history of the people of God, God is at work for the good of his people. And the other way is personally, that even in the darkest of times in our lives, God is providentially at work for the good of his people. It is that second application of the book, that personal application, that is, I think, the most powerful and helpful message from the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1 is about Naomi returning to the Lord. Here's an old hymn. I'm going to quote a lot of old hymns tonight because I'm old. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the face of God. He to save my soul from danger, interposed his precious blood. That's a hymn that speaks of how the Lord Jesus sought us out for our salvation. But it goes on, that hymn. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, take my heart Take and seal it with thy spirit from above. Now, there is a realistic description of all of our lives as Christians from time to time, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Now, Naomi had wandered from the Lord. She had made bad decisions, or her husband had And there were consequences of these decisions. And in that faraway country in Moab, or if you like, in the kingdoms of this world, far from Bethlehem, the house of bread where God wanted them to be, the Lord sought her. Now, I've had a number of conversations with people over the last month or two when it is patently clear to them that the Lord has sought them out. And they have been, in some ways, in the kingdoms of this world, with all the bright lights. And when you are in the kingdom of this world with all the bright lights, soon the lights no longer shine so bright. The Lord has sought them. 
and brought them back to Bethlehem, to the house of bread, or to the place where God is. That's Naomi. But she came back empty and bitter and sad. And Naomi, at the end of chapter 1, she says, Do not call me Naomi, which means the pleasant one, because the Lord has made me bitter, for he has brought me back empty. I've lost everything, humanly speaking. And she had no heart. However many ministers said it to her, however many Christians in her small group encouraged her, she had no confidence, no expectation that the Lord would fill her again with hope, let alone use her in any way. Naomi came back to the Lord, and Ruth, that young Moabite woman, turned to the Lord for the first time. It was a remarkable decision. She stood on that crossroads of life. She had two choices, to return to Moab, to the kingdoms of this world, where, humanly speaking, it was wise for her to go. For there she would find a husband. There she would find a home. There she would find a future. Or turn to the Lord, where all she had to go on was a promise, somebody else's faith. And Naomi did all that she could to persuade Ruth to go that way. And one of the powerful things in the book of Ruth is the decisions, the, the tension, the, the, the writer it means us to really understand why people make wrong decisions. But Ruth said, I will go where you go. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. I'm not following you because I love you and I have some obligation to you. I am following your God, and I will never stop following him. And so the two women returned to Bethlehem, the house of bread. There is bread again in Bethlehem, but they have nothing. They're widows. In the ancient world, no hope, no prospects. Now, let me just say, as I said last week, if you empathize with Naomi, and some of you do, you're empty, and you're bitter, and you've never lost your faith, but the Lord has brought you back, do not allow the devil to keep you in Ruth chapter 1. Many people stay there. And he will be working hard to keep you there. I mean, you're not in Moab anymore. You're not in the kingdoms of this world. You're in Ruth chapter 1. And you, like Naomi, are empty and bitter. And you think, I can never be fool. I can never have hope. I will always be bitter and hurt. Because I've lost everything. She lost her husband and her son. That's Ruth chapter 1. Now, chapter 2, what I've called 
the Lord's saving grace or experiencing grace. One of the great things about studying biblical narrative or stories is that they don't simply teach us the theology or the truth. We experience it with the characters in Scripture. Now, verse 1, what I've called an introduction to Boaz. Verse 1 is not part of the action of the drama. Rather, it is a comment from the author to the reader of the book introducing Boaz. And the very fact that the author includes this kind of narrator's comment at the start of the chapter, you see the point. It's for our benefit. Ruth didn't know Boaz from Adam. She had no idea about this man. But we get this signal that this man is going to be important. Verse 1, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. He's a relative of Elimelech, and therefore he is a possible kinsman or guardian redeemer who could save Naomi. And in the Old Testament world, someone in Naomi's position as a widow, the only prospect she had of continuing the family line was someone in her family taking on the responsibility to, to, to look after the property in the land and to, to, to marry the widow, that the family line could be observed, preserved. And then we move into the, that's on the side, Boaz. Now, the Lord's providence, verses 2 to 3. Verse 2, read with me. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. The law of God provided for the poor. Widows were amongst the poorest and for foreigners. And one part of the law was that a small part of the field was to be left unharvested, And in the parts that had been harvested, the bits and pieces, the gleanings left lying on the ground were to be left for the poor. Think of when you cut the grass. That may not be an illustration that many, all of you, but some of you will have grass. When you cut the grass, you kind of leave bits lying on the ground. And if you look at a a field that's harvested, there's lots of stuff lying on the ground. And that was to be left for the widows to glean. Now, Ruth and Naomi were well qualified for this provision. They're poor and foreigners. The Word of God made this possible. And so verse 3, she went out, now Ruth, entered a field and began to glean among the harvesters. And as it turned out, or as it happened, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, you can read that in one of two ways. She went out, in obedience to the word of God, and she just happened to come into a field belonging to Boaz. Or, let me read it another way, so she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it happened. Or, she just happened to come into a field belonging to Boaz. And the lights begin to flash. For us, not for them, for us, the reader. It's Boaz's field. Now, Ruth's just gleaning in a field. 
And this is how God's providence works. Ruth's just gleaning in a field. She picks her Bible up, says, go and glean in a field. So she goes and gleans in a field. That's what she is doing. But we are told she just happened to come into that field. So there are two ways to read that verse. And there are two ways to see our lives as Christians. She just went and did it. Or she just happened to come. Much of the time, most of the time, we don't know what God is doing. There's a great psalm on God's providence, Psalm 77. God's providence is like footsteps or footprints in the sea. I mean, if you stick your foot in the sea, in almost no time it's gone. I think we should be wary of people who say with an absolute certainty that God is doing this or God is doing that in my life, that God has a plan for me, as if I know what that plan is for sure. People who say, God has told me. God has told me that I'm to do this. Now, sometimes that's true. If that was the case, we wouldn't need to trust And for another thing, God's providence weaves through so many people's lives and through so many situations at the same time that we'd never keep up. Sometimes we see God's providence, but only really in hindsight. Maybe you're sitting here, like Naomi or Ruth. You've come back to the Lord and you're bitter and empty. Or you've come to the Lord for the first time. And you look back. Providence is like a Hebrew word. It can only be read backwards. You look back. And you see. The footprints of God. The intersections. The people he brought into your life. How he brought you into a particular situation. Mostly, you can only see that in hindsight. You cannot see it in the present. Especially if you are empty and bitter. Let me give you three examples of God's providence. One sounds a little bit corny and sentimental, but it happens to be true. My wife, Sally... There are no uh, rules against me speaking about her in church. How about how she just happened to come into my life? Of course, it's fair to say that my whole life in ministry is a factor of that. Now, to be fair, unlike Boaz, it took me a while to notice. It took Boaz 10 minutes. It took me 10 years But had Sally not happened to come into my life and marry me and be used by God to shape and mold me and to be a partner in the work of the gospel, my personality in ministry would simply not work in a church. But I had no idea then 
what God was going to do in 10 years or 20 years. Sally and I, in Keswick and Ireland in the summer, encountered many people. And when you're in a convention like that, they tell you everything. The only other time that's happened to us is when we had our children and a midwife. I mean, you tell them everything and they tell you everything. It's a strange thing. People would speak to us in, in Ireland about, about their lives. And I can't share their story just in case maybe they're listening or you, you might know them. People would tell us about how they just came to live in a certain place and discovered that their next door neighbor shared their life story in every respect except their next door neighbor knew Jesus. And now they do. Let me give you an example that is one that I can say her name, Agnes. Many of you will know or remember Agnes. I told her story in Ireland. She can't uh, complain about us using her name because she's not with us anymore. She was a lovely, sweet lady. Everyone loved visiting her. She loved her minister. She had a soft spot for me. I could do no wrong. But I could not get through to her with the gospel. It was like a, a big brick wall. The last conversation I had with her, this side of eternity, I looked her square in the eye and said, Agnes, do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died to forgive your sins? She looked me straight in the eye and said, no. Just like that. So I came back that night, emailed the elders and said, pray for Agnes. She was taken into hospital. Someone just happened to give her a church magazine. And she was reading the article that I had written. I remember writing it under pressure as always. You know, here's the real world of minister writing a minister's letter. You think and pray for months about what you're going to write. No, you don't. You see the deadline. Boom, out it comes. And you look, what did I write last month? Can I copy it? I shouldn't have told you that. <laughs> it was a letter expressing our thanks to the Lord for this building and our thanks to the Lord for the gospel. And it finished up by saying, are you a Christian? Are you really a Christian? Do you have joy in your heart? Can you face death with a steady eye? And it just happened to be that Sheila, here tonight, was visiting her. And Agnes looked up with that picture of our minister that she loved. And this, is he, Robert, saying that I'm not a Christian? And Sheila had the honesty to say to her, yes. How easy would it be evangelistically for us to say, of course he's not. Yes, he is saying that. And Agnes all her life had based her faith on her mum. A wonderful mum. She had never come to terms that God has no grandchildren. So Sheila explained the gospel. And just as we were getting to that, let me pray with you moment. Some orderly or whatever came in, and that was it. She was whisked off for some x-ray. Sheila goes back two days later to try to pick up the conversation. And she walks in the door, and Agnes said, Don't worry, I've remembered. I've trusted the Lord Jesus. I had to do that on my own. The Lord's providence. The Lord's providence. 
So do not think, if you are thinking tonight of some elderly relative who doesn't know the Lord Jesus, that that cannot happen at that age. The Lord's providence. Now sometimes God lets us see what he's doing to encourage us. Much of the time, most of the time, we can't see. And that's why God has given us books like Ruth in our Bibles to see the signature of God's grace. You see, the purpose of studying a book like Ruth is that it shows us what God's signature on a life is like. And God's signature in the life of Ruth and Naomi is God's signature in your life. All of the time, God is at work for your good. Now let's move to the second point on the sheet, the Lord's saving grace. I want us to see through Ruth's experience of grace and mercy what it's like to experience the saving grace of God. What it's like to experience the saving grace of God. And this is not Romans. If you want the the logic and the, the kind of forensic explanation of the saving grace of God, and that's a warming heart thing, come in the mornings. Here in Ruth, we get kind of shafts of light that, that we see in Jesus most powerfully. But little insights long before Jesus came of what it's like to experience God's saving grace. Firstly, verses 4 to 8, the Lord's saving grace is for everyone. If you were watching the story as a film, in these verses, Ruth would be in the background over there, not too far away. You could still see her among the group gleaning after the reapers. But in the foreground, it's Boaz, you see. He enters, the Lord be with you. And his workers reply, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Which is the first illustration of Anglicans in the Bible. Those of you who know the Lord be with you, the Lord bless you. Just to make Rog feel at home. And Boaz looks out in the field, and he must have caught Ruth in his eye. Who does that young woman belong to? She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. And she said, please let me glean, gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field, and she remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. She is an outsider. She is a Moabite. She is a Gentile. And how does Boaz, the Redeemer, and if you see a shaft of light running to Jesus, that's fine. Just a shaft. How does the Redeemer speak to the Gentile? Hundreds of years before Christ. My daughter, listen to me. Do not go and glean in another field. And don't go away from me. Stay here. The Lord's saving grace is for everyone, even you. Andy Robertson was telling me that in Charleston, people think they're too bad for the gospel. I guess in Morningside, people think they're too good. And the devil's quite happy one way or the other. Too bad, too good. I am not worth saving. I don't need saving. Or the Lord is just not interested in me. What is he saying to you tonight? 
the Lord Jesus by his spirit is saying, my daughter or my son, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't wander off somewhere else. Stay here. Keep coming. Stay in the place where you will hear. The Lord's saving grace is for all. It is personal. Verses 4 to 8 remind us that it's personal. God saves people one by one. My daughter. That phrase is used 11 times in the book, my daughter. What does the Lord Jesus say? For example, Mark chapter 2, my son, your sins are forgiven. To the woman who reached out and touched Jesus' cloak, Mark chapter 5, my daughter. Now, I, I would be surprised if someone sitting in this room tonight is not hearing these words from the Lord Jesus. I'm not taking words that Boaz used of Ruth and kind of doing a little bit of ecclesiastical gymnastics to get to Jesus. What does Jesus say to the man lying on his mat? What does Jesus say to that woman who reached out, not with a faith like the Apostle Paul, she just reached out? My daughter. My son. Maybe that's taken a grip of your heart in a powerful way, even as I speak these words. The Lord's saving grace, verse 9, provides and protects. Watch this field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. Remember, these are the days in which the judges ruled. People would lay a hand on people in the fields. Whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. I have told the men not to lay, whenever you are thirsty. These words remind us of the words the Lord Jesus said, I am the living water. I am the bread of life. The Lord is my shepherd. Now verses 10 to 12 are a kind of break in the text. So if you've fallen asleep, You know, people really do fall asleep in services. And uh, they really do. It's very discouraging. So please don't fall asleep. <laughs> but sometimes on a Sunday night, you know, if it's been a busy day, my eyes droop too. But wake up. This is a marvelous little bit in the middle here to stop a problem that might happen if it weren't there. So uh, we're still in the big bit on what saving grace is like. And, and he, give me a, let me give you a title for 10 to 12. The Lord's saving grace is found by seeking refuge under the Lord's wings. The Lord's saving grace is not found through our being godly. The Lord's saving grace is not found by Ruth because she went with Naomi back to Bethlehem. The Lord's saving grace is not found because Ruth went out into that field and gleaned. The Lord's saving grace is found by Ruth, by Naomi, by you and by I, me, because we come under the wings of the Lord. Now, verse 10, at this, Ruth's experience of Boaz loving kindness to her, at this she bowed down with her face to the ground and she asked him, why have I found such favor in your sight? Why did you notice me a foreigner? Now notice here, this is so important, her face is to the ground. 
a physical illustration of the state of her mind and heart. Why me? Why have I found such faith in you? How do you sing this song? This is not an oldie. Well, it is, but it's a modern one too. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. How do you sing that? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Or do you sing it with your face to the ground? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Why me? Why me? Is a true understanding of the gospel. Because I deserve it. Because of my parents. Because of the church. Why me? We must feel a sense of wretchedness, unworthiness. Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland. It's all the surface evidence. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May, he be richly, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. Here's the answer. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. These words take us to the very heart of the gospel. Think of Romans in the morning. I have come to the cross of Christ and under the dying Savior, I have received his righteousness. Have mercy on me, the psalmist writes, for in you I take refuge. Here's an old hymn. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Vile I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Now, that's what Newton meant when he said amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Now, I can say that with an emotional voice. I can make you cry. I can make you laugh. But the Holy Spirit can really make you in your heart say, why did he save me? Why? And there is, in truth, no answer to that question. How often do we ask that question, why have I found grace? When did you last bow your face to the ground and say, why me? What answer would you give to the why me question? Here's John Piper. Is it a proud, self-centered, legalistic, works-based answer? Or is it a grace-exalting, Christ-exalting answer to why I have found favor? It makes all the difference in the world to plead God's worth alone as the source of our eternal hope instead of pleading our worth or one tiny iota of our worth as the source of our eternal hope makes all the difference in the world. You know, it makes all the difference in the world simply to his cross that I cling. Or in Christ alone, my hope is 
found. And with all these hymns old and new, there is a world of a difference between singing them and really believing them. It matters to the Lord Jesus we come to see this. Here's the Lord Jesus. Think of the city of Jerusalem. Rog was telling us this morning of the city of Edinburgh as he drove up. He spends his life on Carlton Hill, and much to your concern, many of you, I spend my life in the Pentlands and the Braids in the dark. I wonder if there's something about looking out over the city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus said. You who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And yet, you were not willing. Then 13 to 17 Uh, The Lord's saving grace is overflowing in its generosity. Verse 13, may I continue to find favor in your eyes. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly. Verse 14, Boaz invites her to the table. I could give you all sorts of New Testament parallels to that. Fullness, plenty, all we need and more. If you trust Jesus tonight, you are not only his child, but his adopted inheritor. Is that enough grace? There's even more, verses 15 and 16. Boaz arranges for Ruth to have privileged reaping facilities. It's way beyond the letter of the law. Why? Because it is, well, why? Because it's precisely not her right. Because that's Romans in the morning, isn't it? It's precisely not our right to have the righteousness of God. So it makes it wonderful. You know, the more I wrestle with this stuff, the more I think that as Christians, have I as a Christian minister really understood the gospel? Do I live my life saying, why me? Oh, thank you, God, it is me. What a wonderful thing it is to have the righteousness of God. And so Ruth, verse 17, gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to an ephah. Now, if you have a big, thick Bible commentary on Ruth, you're going to get 35 pages on what an ephah is. Let me tell you the answer. It is one-tenth of a homer. Or, and I like this in the explanation, the maximum load an average donkey in the ancient world could carry. If any of you are doing a PhD on that, you need to uh, well, do something else. That's 90 kilograms or 200. It means that, that, that Ruth was humping back this great big massive bag of barley. Because, what does it mean? It means that God's love has no limits. His grace has no measure. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Now remember, many of you here are like Naomi. we get to her in a minute. You cannot ever think that will happen again. Let's turn to her as we close. The Lord's restoring grace. 
Naomi's experience, verses 18 to 23, of the Lord's restoring grace. Ruth dominates the narrative in chapter 2, but from verse 18, the focus is back on Naomi as well as Ruth. In the narrative, Naomi is a believer who has turned away from the Lord. She has come to an end of herself, but the Lord has brought her back. She is bitter, she is empty, she is without hope. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. I was chatting to somebody this week who, as a young man, lost everything. Literally everything. Health, a future. And as he lay sick, he trusted Jesus. How on earth can that be? Because the Lord needs to, in some measure, empty us that he might fill us. And to those who have been emptied of a great deal, when the Lord fills you, he gives you in your memory and in your life an experience that he will undoubtedly use to such significance It's not a simple equation, but oftentimes in the Christian life, the most broken people are the people that God can build up and fashion. The Lord is breaking you down. If you were at rock bottom, many, many people have found themselves there. Well, let's see at the very end of this chapter what happens. Now, I suspect that Ruth, as she humphed back, humph is a good Scottish word. Somebody in Ireland asked me what humph meant. And I said, well, it means what it sounds like, humph. They just went away looking none the wiser. I suspect Ruth would be like a, a little eaglet who flew under the wings of the Lord, there is no way Naomi was in a place that she is going to fly anywhere. She kind of found herself back in Bethlehem, and I suspect she didn't even want to go. To such the Lord comes with his wings. You can imagine Ruth walking back to town. She'd be exhausted because of the barley. You can picture her on the road, her heart beating with physical exhaustion, but a heart beating with thankfulness, with excitement. What had happened to her? She couldn't wait to get home to tell Naomi about this man. Remember, she had no idea who Boaz was. Roger did brilliantly with this. I was going to have to correct him if he did it wrong. What did he do? Where on earth have you been today? Not, where did you glean today? Where did you glean? Blessed is the man who took care of you. Ruth's answer, 
at the end of verse 19 must have thrilled her heart as an awareness of God saving his restoring grace steals upon her. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. And I wonder if after 20 years, for the first time, a flicker of a smile or the flicker of warmth in Naomi's heart came back again. He has not. Who's the he? So, Lord, the Lord has not stopped his kindness to the living and the dead. That man is a close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Boaz will be their guardian, their kinsman redeemer. He will be their refuge, their security, their future, their hope. Here's another verse of a hymn. could sing these all night. When we have exhausted our store of endurance. These are so true, these hymns. They really are wonderful. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done. You know, when your strength has gone by lunchtime. Because it's so bleak. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources. Our Father's full giving is only begun. The last few verses bubble with anticipation of what is to come. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers and, and you're going to speed up with this. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughters-in-law, it's almost like the end of it. And what comes in the next episode? And lots of flashing. Be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him. Be good for you not to go to another field. I mean, that's an understatement. Or for you who's sitting here, don't not come back next week. You've got to keep coming. Because God's speaking to you. And you know you're not at the end of the story because the chapter ends with these words. She lived with her mother-in-law. Much as I love my mother-in-law, that cannot be the end of the story. (laughs) Now I said that in Ireland and there was a complete, utter, stony spiritual silence. (laughs) And there's a poor couple here tonight who are hearing this for the second time. (laughs) That can't be the end of the story. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this powerful, powerful portion of Scripture. The Lord's saving grace, the Lord's restoring grace, stealing upon needy people, This is not emotion or hype up. It's real life. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would come into the hearts of those who are empty and bitter and fill them. We pray, Lord, that you would come into the hearts of those who have no Savior, and save them simply to the cross I cling. Help us, Lord, to ask the question this week, why me? And help us to rest in the wonderful answer that the Lord has opened my heart to trust him. He has said to me, my son, 
my daughter, your sins are forgiven. For Jesus' sake. Amen.